Good morning. I'm, I'm Matthew. I live at the Balbin Farm, so you guys are most welcome <laughs> to join me there. And the water is nice. Um, we're reading from uh, 1 Peter, um, so if you don't have a Bible, we're going to be handing out some Bibles, and feel free to take one with you if you need one. Um, it's kind of cool reading from the letter of Peter. So Peter was a really good friend of, of Jesus, as most of you probably know, and he probably wrote this much later in life uh, with his wisdom as he reflects back on life. Uh, let's hear what Peter had to say, inspired by the Holy Spirit and by God. So 1 Peter, starting at uh, 1 Peter Chapter 2, starting at verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by in you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, family, it is a joy to be get together, be able to gather together today. Um, as you can tell, our setup here is a little bit different, and one of the things I've absolutely loved about our church family since its conception is the reality that, you know, as much as things will change and will show up in a location and, you know, there'll be stuff all across the stage was, okay, don't worry about the stage, let's just drop down, let's do it on the floor today. And so um, I've absolutely loved that. And I think it's actually one of, one of the key pieces about our church culture is that we are, we're used to change. You know, a lot of cultures and communities uh, push off change, but we are very much a church family that acknowledges that change is normal and change happens and that's okay. And so we're glad that we can be gathered here today. Before we jump into the text this morning, which Matthew read for us, why don't we take a moment to pause and to thank the Lord that he is good and that his word is true. And maybe for you this morning, that's just simply quieting yourself and saying, God, what do you want to teach me today? Uh, maybe you've got plans the rest of the weekend, but for right now, why don't you just hone in, pray, ask God that he'd be speaking to you this morning uh, before we jump into the text. So we do thank you, God, for this morning. 
We thank you that we do have this space to gather in. We thank you that your word is true and that we can read it. I pray that we would be reminded that these are not simply words on a page, but these are words that you have written for the benefit of ourselves here many years later from when they were originally written, but yet no less true today than they were then. So may you challenge our church community, may you challenge our church family, and may we grow because of what you want to share with us today. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, one of the greatest um, challenges and issues within the church, and what I mean by that is the large C church, in particular church communities, and one of the greatest arguments that skeptics have uh, about Christians is the level at which Christians love each other. Uh, You've maybe heard this quote from Gandhi, but he said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, There's another author by the name of Anne Rice, and she wrote this, For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservably infamous group. For 10 years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Now, whether or not you agree with the conclusions of Gandhi and of Anne Rice, I think we can all agree that the church has not had a great reputation of its ability to actually love one another well. And the watching world has said, why would I want to become a Christian if being a Christian means that I'm just going to be fighting amongst myself with now other Christians? Now, part of the issue here, I think, is in the way that we define love. Right? If you're going to say that a community is struggling to love one another, that must mean that you have a certain understanding of what love is. And so here's what the scriptures teach about what is love. A very popular verse that is oftentimes read at weddings. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8. What is love? Well, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, right off the bat, here are some conclusions that we can make about love. Number one, love is not easy. And anyone that tells you it is, is an absolute liar. Right? Love is not easy. And anyone tells you is, is lying. Love is not easy. Secondly, true love can be one of the most rewarding and painful experiences in life. It can be one of the most rewarding and the most painful experiences in life. We read here that love never ends. Now, According to this definition, yes, 100%, I think we can all agree that Christians struggle to love one another. But here's my challenge back. I think any group of people is going to struggle to love each other. Any group of people, and whether or not you are a Christian, we all struggle to truly love. And so that's why I think the language or the verbiage in our culture of, well, just love, is so unhelpful. Because love is actually extremely difficult 
You can't simply just love because love goes against, in many ways, all of your own selfish desires. It's anti-self at times to choose to actually to love one another. So as a result, in summer, we all struggle to love because love is extremely hard. So I could end here, but I'm not going to because I believe the scriptures actually point to us and help us, whether or not you're a Christian, on how do we actually live and love each other regardless of the fact that it's extremely hard to love each other. Like, how do we stay motivated as a community loving each other? Because here's, here's, here's a huge point that we have to make about something that Jesus said, and this just raises the bar as far as why the stakes are so high about our love. Jesus said this in John 13, verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. So the very qualifier to the watching world and the culture of if we are disciples of Jesus is how well we are loving one another inside the church. This is significant. I mean, the stakes are high. They will know we love Jesus or not if we're followers of Jesus by our love for each other. So we need to learn how do we love each other and how do we stay motivated in loving one another. Now, the context of 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 10, now that we're going to go there, is that Peter has transitioned his attention from about verse 22 in chapter 1 till the end of verse 10, where we're going to be in chapter 2, focusing on community. It's community application. So I know a lot of us, when we read the scriptures, will oftentimes get there and be like, oh, that's really nice for me. You have to remember that these were many ways letters written to groups of people to be practiced out in community. And so the particular way that we need to look to applying what we're about to read here is in the context of community. In many ways, what we're about to read is like a parent instructing their child and then giving their child reasons as to why they are being instructed in a certain way. So verses 1 to 3 are the instruction or the correction And then verses 4 to 10 are going to be the reminders. So if you're a parent, you know this, right? How many of you, uh, just a show of hands, have ever tried to prevent or stop your children from doing something that you knew that they shouldn't do? Right? Like, that's a very common thing. You're being a good parent if you do that. Welcome to the world of parenting. Oftentimes say that, you know, the new version of parenting is to just not parent children, you know. But the actual healthy way of parenting our kids is to correct them, to instruct them, to say, no, don't do that. Now, eventually your kids get to a certain age where that's not enough just to say no. Right? They then ask the question, why? <laughs> why can't I do that? You know, don't do that. Well, why? Hmm, interesting. I've never thought about that before, right? And what Peter is doing here in a very loving, caring, but also challenging way is he's first instructing us in verses 1 to 3. He's saying, you can't do this or else it's going to affect loving Christian community. And then he's going to go from verses 4 to 10 and say, this is why you ought not to do that. We have to remember that. He's trying to lovingly encourage us, challenge us, but then root all of our action in the fact of who we are, how the Christian family ought to operate based upon what Christ has done for us. That's where we're going to land today. So let's start. Verse 1, chapter 2 of Peter's letter to the scattered church. He writes, So put away all malice and all deceit 
and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Interesting verse. Now, as this relates to loving Christian community or community in general, I think we would all say, okay, those are no-brainers, right? If you want to have loving community, you ought to put these things away. But for Peter, he has a particular motive. And to get that motive, you need to go back to 1 Peter 1, verse 22b to 23a, where he says this, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Love each other earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. So because of what Christ has done for you, you ought to now love each other. And then he makes this list, these attributes, these characteristics, these actions. And he says we need to be putting these things away. And so practically, let's look at each of these things. Malice. He first mentions malice. Put away malice. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use malice in my everyday vocabulary. But what is malice? Malice is the desire to harm someone. It's maliciousness. It's hostility. And it's bitterness. Having bitterness in your heart towards another person. Now remember his application. He's applying this to Christian community. So what is he saying? He's saying, Christians, if you want to have loving Christian community, you need to put away your bitterness towards one another. Whoa. He then goes on. Put away deceit. What is deceit? Deceit is to deceive someone by misrepresenting the truth It's fraud, and it's cunning. Christian community, put away deceit. Put away any misrepresentation of one another. If you're trying to misrepresent the views of somebody else in the Christian community, put that away. Don't present their view until you have their view fully figured out. Don't misrepresent it. That's fraud. It says, put away hypocrisy. Well, what's hypocrisy? This is more common, but it's claiming to have higher standards in your life than is actually true. It's false virtue, and it's another form of deceit. He then says, put away envy. What's envy? Envy is resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions and wanting those things for yourself. Ultimately, it's discontentment with yourself, and it's discontentment with God. For what he has given you. Um, I haven't read the whole book. I only looked at a couple of the chapters, but a guy by the name of Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. What he's essentially getting at in the book is to say, here are the sins that we overlook oftentimes. They're respectable, uh, but they're still sinful. And this is what he writes about envy. Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we want that same advantage, leading to the further sin of covetousness. Usually, there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. First, we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify. And second, we tend to envy in them the areas that we value the most. He goes on to write in the chapter that many of us don't envy people that we see as sort of a different level than ourselves, as far as maybe it might be career or maybe it might be regarding relationships. You oftentimes envy those people that are at similar levels or stages as you. He talks about himself. He's like, I know this writer, this other Christian writer, and they got, they got all these international speaking opportunities. He's like, why don't I get those speaking opportunities? 
That's envy. So we're to put away envy. He then says we're to put away slander. Well, what's slander? Slander is making a false statement intended to damage someone else's reputation. It's defamation, and it's also character assassination or denigration. Here's what Jerry Bridges writes about slander. He says, we slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people, even though we can't see their hearts or know their particular circumstances. We slander when we say another believer is not committed, when he or she does not practice the same spiritual disciplines we do or engage in the same Christian activities we engage in. We slander when we misrepresent another person's position on a subject without first determining what that person's position is. We slander when we blow out of proportion another person's sin and make that person appear to be more sinful than he or she really is. The motive behind slander is often to gain an advantage in some way over another person. Slander is actually lying. So what does Peter say? Put away these things. Get rid of them. May they have no place in your loving Christian community. Now once again, we go back to, well, why? Well, practically, whether or not you're a Christian, here's one reason why we'd put these things away. It's, it's obviously, it's going to destroy loving community, right? Like if you're trying to build up a loving community, Again, regardless of the fact if you're a Christian or not, you probably say, yeah, like probably a group of people aren't going to love super well one another if they're slandering each other all the time, right? So it destroys loving community. But secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, it disregards the image of God in yourself and other people. When Christians do this to those who are not Christians, we cease to believe the best about other people and we misrepresent God's image to the watching world. We don't believe the best. We don't see the image of God in others. And then when we do it ourselves, we're also diminishing God's image in ourselves. But then thirdly, to other believers, here's what it does. This is particularly challenging. It renounces the adoption of a brother or sister. What do I mean by that? For the Christian to do these things towards another Christian is to deny behaviorally what Christ has accomplished for the other person. You ungospel them. You ungospel them. When we come to know Christ, we come to understand what Christ has done for us, what Christ sees in us what he has accomplished on the cross for our salvation. And when we go around slandering, being deceitful and envious towards other believers, what we're saying is, you're less than the adoption that Christ offered for you. We renounce it. We denounce it in their life behaviorally by doing such a thing. And we ought to see one another as Christ sees us, as Peter will go on to say. So in summary, Peter is writing and he was reminding the scattered church that because of their adoption into the same family as one another, they are to sacrificially love each other and cast off any vile practice and attitude that undoes behaviorally what God has done for them in Christ. And the same is true for you and I and we make this decision on a daily basis. On a daily basis to say, no, I'm going to believe the best of others until I have the facts. And then you still believe the best in them. Do not slander, be deceitful. Well, what's the alternative? And you might say, well, how do we stay motivated to do this? And Peter goes on. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
Now, I don't have to uh, convince or use this illustration for those of you that have been parents or are parents or have little kids. It's incredible about babies. As soon as they're born, they immediately want to be fed, right? And, you know, all through the hospitals and if you worked with midwives, it's like skin to skin, skin to skin. Let's get them feeding right away. The baby comes out with this nature of I'm going to feed and I know where to feed from. I need breast milk. I need to feed. And they very quickly desire it regularly. And how many times have you as a parent or maybe you're around people that are parents with little kids and their kids start squawking? And you're like, well, this, you know, put a little bit of a damper on our nice time here. But then they're like, you know what? They're fussy. You know why? They're hungry. Right? They're hungry. We need our child to be fed. And as soon as they're fed, it's like, boom, ready to go. Smiles, chipper. This is the analogy that Peter is using for us. He's saying, okay, you want to put away all malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, slander? Here's what you ought to do. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, what is he talking about spiritual milk? Pure spiritual milk, according to Peter, is God's word. It's the gospel that they received. And the result is going to be spiritual growth or ongoing sanctification. What this means is not only is the gospel the means of our salvation, the means by which we come to know Christ, that we become united with God, but it's also the means by which we continue to grow and mature as followers of Jesus, to be reminded yet again of what God has done for us in Christ. Therefore, do you want to love one another and put away the vile attitudes and behaviors? What Peter says is long for the gospel. That it's the food that you need when you're fussy. Long for the gospel. Long for God's word. Get fussy when you don't have it because you will not grow without it. As Martin Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. Peter then adds a qualifier. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what is Peter saying here? Well, according to Peter, a Christian ought to want the word, the gospel, or the milk. If indeed they have tasted and seen that God is good. He's saying, in other words, why would someone long for something they have not had, and why would they not long for it if they knew how good it was? It's an allusion to Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him. Now, as an example to you know, make, this, make this personal, we sometimes ask whether we ourselves or someone else has been saved, adopted, or they've become a Christian. And here, Peter lists an evidence or a qualifier and therefore challenges us with these questions. Do you... Or do they desire the word? Do you or do they want it as a baby longs for milk? Do you or they, do you want more? You know, I've had my two o'clock feed. I need my four o'clock feed. I need my six o'clock feed. I need my eight. I need my ten. Oh, and you want to go to bed? Too bad, because I still need it while you, when you want to sleep. I can't stop wanting it. I need more. Do you or they need it to survive? Tom Schreiner in his commentary writes, Peter wanted readers to contemplate, as he wants you and I to contemplate, whether they have in fact experienced the kindness of the Lord. And he was confident that the answer would be affirmative. 
Longing to grow spiritually comes from a taste of the beauty of the Lord, an experience of his kindness and goodness. And those who pursue God ardently have tasted his sweetness. Now, I just want to stop for a second. This is tough stuff. Right? Like, sometimes what we can do is we can just, you know, briefly, quickly read through the scriptures and we're like, well, okay, neat. Sort of got lost on a few of the points, but okay. Let's just stop for a second. What is he saying? Put away all of these things. What we ought to do and what should we want to do instead? Long for God's word, understanding of the gospel, so that we can continue to grow and therefore be able to put off all of these different things. And then he says, and you'll want to do this if indeed you have tasted that God is truly that good. Right? Like if you like Menchie's, you continue to go back to Menchie's because you believe Menchie's is pretty good. I keep going back. I think it's that good. That peanut butter sauce that you can put on at the end, it's like, wow. Wow. Changes the entire experience. And I keep going back because I believe it's that good. What Peter's saying is, do you want to keep coming back? Do you want more? Because there's more to be had. And he's really that good. You know, you might say, well, why do, why do Christians, you know, maybe be asking, why do Christians keep gathering like this? Or why are the Christians across the street from me always having people over that are other Christians? And why do they keep asking me to come over to their house? It's because we've tasted and seen that God is good and we want you to see how good he is. It's like, you want to go to Menchie's? You've got to go to Menchie's. Have you been before? No, I've never been. You've got to go. Because once you've had Menchie's, Stone Cold Creamery or whatever that other place is, isn't going to be as good to you. Because this is that good. If indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He's that good. So, so Peter instructs us. He, he challenges us. He's trying to correct us. And then he's going to go on here to tell us, well, here's the why. You know, like a child. Well, why? Why do I got to taste and see that he's good? Here's why. Here's why. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Now, in case there's any confusion, as you come to him, he's the living stone rejected by men. Who is this? Jesus. You know, Sunday school answer, Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus. He is chosen and precious in the sight of God. In God's sight, Jesus was not rejected, but he, in fact, was chosen. He is God's honored and chosen stone. So what is Peter saying? Right off the bat, as he's transitioning to why, he's saying, remember the goal, the reward, and the prize that you are coming to, Jesus. Robert Murray McShane writes this, every one look we take at ourselves, we should take 10 looks at Christ. Every one look we take at ourselves, we should take 10 looks at Christ. Peter's saying, why? Remember where you're going. Remember who's the prize. He was rejected by men, so you ought to be, expect that you will be rejected by men. He was chosen and precious in the sight of God. You ought to realize that you as well are chosen and precious in the sight of God. But how quickly we forget the prize and the goal. Um, when I first planted, and some of you in this room were part of that initial planting team, and then this is now the merge of a couple of church plants, but I remember in the first section of the plant, which was Church of the Ward, um, we were gathering in bars downtown. We started in what was, um, it's now Royal Electric, but it was initially called the Vinyl, and we would gather uh, 
we had a bit of an ongoing rhythm. There would be like two or three Sundays on. We would take one off. And in the summer months, when you're with a planting or core team of about like 30 or 40 people, the summer kills you because suddenly, you know, half your people are away. It's kind of like a Sunday like today. Like clearly it's a long weekend, right? And you look around, but like we're a church community now that's a bit larger. So on Sundays like this, I mean, we still look around. There's like, wow, there's still people here. When you're in a church plant with like 30 people and it's the middle of the summer, maybe 10 people show up. And you've still done all the work of like setting up the chairs, the band to still practice the songs. That is one of the most humbling experiences as a leader. I'd come from a church environment where um, it was a large church environment. My speaking was celebrated. I said, no, God's calling me to plant a church. I've got to go plant a church. And suddenly there's like 10 people sitting there. And you're like, what am I doing? But you know what? That challenged me to consider, who am I doing this for? When we're called to, as, as preachers and ministers to preach the word in season and out of season, regardless of how many people are sitting in front of you, keep preaching the word. Why? Because we remember the goal and the prize and the reward is Jesus, not the people sitting in the seats. So hard, but Jesus is the prize. Peter continues, and he uses temple imagery to make his next point. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. According to Peter here, what he says is, You, God's people, the adopted children, are these living stones, and your formation of coming together is like a spiritual house. He's building out the imagery and the knowledge of what we understand later that, that we, God's people, the church, this is where the Spirit of God dwells. The Spirit of God dwells in the church. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? This is what Peter's saying here. He says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now he's starting to build out who we are because of Christ. He says, you are where... The Spirit of God dwells. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter here is quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16, and he's pointing to the fact that God the Father has initiated and, and appointing and electing Jesus Christ as the stone in Zion and the cornerstone of the church. Now, for those of us that are not in masonry, you might ask the question, well, what is a cornerstone? I mean, we sing it, right? We sing that song, Christ alone, cornerstone. Like, we sing this song. But how many of you are like, I know what a cornerstone is. I could point it out. Here's what a cornerstone is, according to Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. Hopefully no one, like, fumbled with the definition before I picked it up. Here's the definition. The cornerstone or foundation stone or setting stone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. It's important since all the other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. Here's a picture of, uh, you know, this is more of an ornate uh, cornerstone. This is what Wikipedia provided for me. But as you can imagine... The rest of the bricks are going to take its point of reference from this one. What does this tell us as God's people? Is we, God's people, are to take our shape from Jesus. So not only is Christ the reward of the prize that we're going to, he's also the one that we take our shape from, that we're to look to. 
Peter goes on, so the honor is for you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the rebuilders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What Peter is saying, well, he's saying there's two groups here to note. There are those who trust Christ and there are those who are destined for honor as Jesus was. And then there are those who do not trust Christ. They're destined for shame because they stumble over Jesus and refuse to believe and to actually obey him. Peter then continues with the imagery that he began in verse 5, in verses 9 to 10. But you, this is speaking to Christian community, who are we? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In these last number of verses, what is it that Peter is trying to tell us? What is the why? He's telling us this. He says, remember who you were and who you are now because of God's mercy and his grace. Remember who you were and who you are now because of God's mercy and grace. Let's start with who you were. Who were we? This could also apply to who you could have been. He says, you were a, could have been a people stumbling over Christ. You are a people destined for shame. You are recipients of and destined for God's just wrath. You are rebels and you're sinners, not accounted as God's people. You were in darkness. In other words, you were hopeless. Now apply this to yourself. Who you were prior to Christ or maybe who you presently are if you do not have Christ. In my own life, I think back to my self-righteousness. Um, I oftentimes will use the analogy of uh, the parable of the prodigal son, right? Oftentimes it's focused on the prodigal that ran. Uh, there's also the older brother that's, that stayed with his father, but believed he was something and that he deserved his father's love because he stayed. And for me, it was the self-righteousness of who I was prior to truly understanding the gospel, which was, I believe I'm pretty special. Why? Because of what I can do for myself. God loves me because of my obedience to him, and he thinks I'm something. But that, what that also led to, if we're to go back to the example of love, is that I didn't love people very well who I didn't believe were good at following all the rules. Because I'm better than you. Because I, I obey God better than you. But then I came to understand the gospel, which was that I was saved not because of my obedience. I was saved because of Christ's obedience. I was saved not on the standing that I could award to myself. I was saved on the basis of what Christ's standing was given to me. So they're coming before God. I can't come and say, hey, look at me. Look how good I am. He'd say, I, I see all of your sin and your self-righteousness, which is also sinful in my sight. You're not so hot now, are you? Oh, God. So who you were 
But then who you are now, who are we now because of Christ's God and God's mercies and grace? We're recipients of his mercy and grace. We're chosen and precious. We're adopted by the Father, which means that you and I are brothers and sisters joined together. And it's actually necessary to be together. We can't do this apart. You know, you maybe know that there's a bit of a movement of people saying, you know, I give up on the church. I'm just going to do it myself. Good luck reading the New Testament in that way written to communities of people. You can't put this behind. This is a community. This is a team sport. This is people together, brothers and sisters. If you don't want to be together now, why would you want to be together eternally? We are brothers and sisters. We're a chosen race. Think about this as an initial recipients of a Gentile audience. Who, who thought of the history of the people of Israel, that they were the chosen race. Peter's writing saying, no, now you are a chosen race too. You are equal with the Jews. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. What this means is that we are deeply loved and we're cared for by God. And therefore, we're to care for one another. Not only your brothers and sisters sort of like, hey, brother John, you know, hey, brother, his sister, this. No, you care for each other because you're brothers and sisters. So apply this to yourself and who you are now if you've come to know Christ and the righteousness that comes from the gift of salvation. And personally, I needed to come to the place of realizing that it was not my self-righteousness or my morality that won me favor with God. It was Christ and his grace. And if he could love me in my self-righteous rebellion and save me, who was I to prohibit the rebellious sinner or the self-righteous saint? And what this leads is to a life of pro-love. Because I see myself, I see my own stain, and if Christ could love me, then who would I be to prohibit that love to somebody else? So he says, remember, remember who you were and who you are now because of God's mercy and grace. And then he finishes with, remember what you are to do. And what are we to do? We're to announce the good news of what God has done in Christ. Notice what he writes. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who we have become is not to be wasted. This new family is called to do things together. And we're called to go and tell others about what God has done for us in Christ. As recipients of God's incredible mercy and grace, we, the family of God, are saved and sent to love one another and to announce to the watching world the goodness of God displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what's crazy about God? is that he loves you the same even when you don't share the gospel with others as when you do. I remember hearing a story of this, this guy who went up to his pastor at the end of a sermon was like, I feel so terrible because every week I hear that I ought to share the gospel with people and every week I go out and I don't do it. And the pastor was like, oh wow, it sounds like you're living under a lot of shame. Did you know that, that God loves you just as much when you do and when you don't? Share it. He's like, really? He's like, well, yes. You know, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He knew every good action you would do, every sinful one too. And he chose to die for you and love you in Christ anyways. 
oh. A few weeks later, it was told to the pastor that this other guy had been sharing the gospel generously for the last few weeks. Not only was the gospel the means to his salvation, it was the means by which it sustained his relationship with Jesus. Because he began to truly see the gift of righteousness that God had given him in Christ. It wasn't on his own merit. It wasn't in his own standing. And this is why we need to hear the gospel every single day because we forget it every day. Because we wake up and we're like, I'm pretty good today. I had a tough week. You know, those of you that are in DNA groups are like, how was your week? Oh, it was bad. Why was it bad? I sinned. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) You're a human being, you know. You're going to. Oh, it's so bad though, you know. It's like, okay, stop for a second. Be reminded of who you are now because of Christ. Would you walk in the victory? Would you walk in the victory of what Christ has accomplished for you? Recognizing what he's done, what he's afforded you, and now what you can offer other people. And Christ is so much better than Menji's. Right? I mean, it's good. Probiotics and all, it's good. But it's not Jesus. You know, we go back to the very beginning of the year when I started teaching on our vision. It's like you talk about what you love. You talk about what you love most. Right? We need, we need our love for Christ spurred on, and it's spurred on when we're reminded of who the prize is, when it's reminded of who we are, who we were, and who we are. It's reminded when we remember what we ought to do, that this is a process. It's a process. God doesn't ask for perfection. Christ was perfect for you. We're going to have communion now. What an opportunity, right? To turn and have communion. To be reminded of Christ's love for us, his grace towards us, God's mercy. To be reminded that how are we to love? You know, that's the question we began with, of how do Christians have love motivated? We remember who loved us first. You look at the better love. 1 John 4 verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. Christ loved us first in our rebellion so we could love others in their rebellion. Christ loved us first in our rebellion so we could love others in their rebellion. As we more fully experience his love, we will more freely be willing to give and love others. So we look to Christ and experience his love. May I invite you to do that today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to commit your life to following Christ, to recognizing what he has done for you, the life he has given you, the eternity that he has secured for you. And that's simply saying, Christ, I identify who I am. I'm a sinner. That I need to be saved. I need your righteousness, not my own self-righteousness. I need to be reminded of your love. I need your love. If you are a follower of Jesus, be reminded of his incredible love for you as we take communion this morning. If you are not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask that you'd allow these elements to pass by. There will be other opportunities if you decide to return. But may we celebrate Christ's incredible gift and sacrifice today with one another. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We do thank you for your incredible love. We do thank you that... When we say things of just love, we need to recognize how difficult love actually is. And 
as we think about love and how hard it is, we look at you and the difficulty. <laughs> I can only imagine of how hard it, it, it must be to love me repeatedly given my rebellion and given my sin. Yet you do, period. Because Christ has taken my place. And so I pray, Jesus, that we would become a greater community of love. We pray that the world would know that we are disciples of Jesus because of our love for one another and that that love would not be just fueled by, well, just love, but would actually be fueled by the definition of love, which is you hanging on a cross for us. So we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. May we each be reminded today of who we are because of Christ. Communion is a time often of reflection. It's a time of confession. Maybe this morning it's confessing and repenting of malice, deceit, envy, slander, hypocrisy. But communion is also time to remember that we stand victorious because of Christ. Because of what he has accomplished for us and who we now are. the night that Jesus was betrayed he took the wine and he took the bread and he used them as visual representations of his body and his blood and he said until the day that he returns we will continue to take communion being reminded of what he has done and what he has accomplished and that is victory and so as we take communion we take it victoriously understanding the victory in Christ So let's first start with the bread, being reminded that this is Christ's broken body, broken for us. Do this in remembrance of him. The same way, he took the cup. He said, do this in remembrance of me, of my blood, shed for you so that you may have life, that you might be declared innocent before a perfect father, free from his judgment and wrath. Let's take the cup together. And now let's sing and celebrate. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good and that his mercies are new every morning.